Well, good morning. I'd like to uh, welcome in our Burlington and Fort Madison campuses today. Uh, great to have you with us. This is just a reminder that uh, although we meet at uh, three different locations every Sunday, we're one church. Uh, one church uh, with one mission, and that's the mission to bring glory to God by being disciples and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Uh, and we want this to happen. Uh, we're looking for this to, to occur in such a way that the transforming power of the gospel becomes evident both here in Southeast Iowa and all around the world. And I just want to tell you, I'm rejoicing today. I'm so thankful that we see God really do that. We see a transformation happening in individual lives and families. We're beginning to see it in some of our communities here in Southeast Iowa. And as we've rejoiced and heard a little bit today, it's also happening in the Middle East and in lots of other parts of the world as well. And so I just want us to take a moment here today and just to thank the Lord and just to celebrate a little bit about the transforming work uh, that he is doing in and through our church. So can we give him uh, some praise here today? Let's do that. All right. Friends, we can never thank and praise the Lord enough. Never, ever, ever. And hopefully we're going to have more opportunity to do that today. So um, if you have a Bible, uh, and I hope you do, go ahead and turn with me to Ephesians uh, chapter 4. Uh, today uh, we come to a major transition point in this letter. Over the last eight weeks, uh, we've had the joy of watching Paul give a concise and powerful explanation of the gospel. Uh, in fact, uh, in Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul gives uh, what is perhaps the most succinct yet potent uh, account of the gospel in Scripture. However, uh, today in Ephesians 4, we're going to see Paul move uh, from explaining the gospel to showing how it should transform our lives. To put it another way, he's going to move uh, from showing us what God has done for us to telling us what difference it should make in our lives. He's going to show us what it means to live a gospel life. So we've entitled this series in Ephesians, A Gospel Life. The first three chapters are the gospel, all right? Now we're going to get into talking about our lives, how the gospel should shape our lives. Uh, and let me say this. So we've moved uh, rather briskly through the first three chapters, uh, but now we're going to slow down quite a bit and squeeze these last three chapters for all they're worth. That's particularly going to be true for Ephesians 4, and that's because it's one of the most practical chapters uh, in the entire Bible. So we're going to actually take six weeks um, to walk through Ephesians chapter 4, which you might think uh, is kind of a long time, uh, but I'm pretty sure that when we're done, you're going to be really thankful that we took this time to really uh, dig into it. Now, one of the reasons uh, we're going to take so much time in the last half of Ephesians is that we want to be a church that doesn't just know the gospel, but that's also transformed by the gospel. You with me here, all right? We don't just want head knowledge. Uh, we want heart knowledge, a heart knowledge that, that, that shows and is displayed in transformed lives. And if that's going to be the case, okay, we're going to have to really dig in here over the coming weeks to see what Paul has to say to us uh, in the last uh, three chapters of this great letter. So with that said, our text for today uh, is verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4. Follow with me now as I read. Paul says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, 
Paul was in prison uh, when he wrote to Ephesians, one of the, his prison epistles. And so from uh, prison, in chains, he says this to the Ephesians, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Why don't you join me in prayer here as we get going. Father, um, we come to you today. Son, we come to you. Holy Spirit, we come to you. We, we thank you for your unity and diversity, the Godhead three in one. We see all of them in our passage here today. And, and we would just pray, uh, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you will uh, be amongst us today, that you will work. We pray that you will move. We pray that you will guide us, that you will teach us, that you will instruct us. Lord, we, we thank you for the unity that we have in you. I pray that you'll teach us today how to maintain it in a way that helps us to grow into the church that you would have us to be. And so, Lord, now uh, guide my words as I speak. Uh, guard our uh, ears and our hearts as, as we listen. Help us to hear everything that you want us to hear today and to be changed in every way that you want us to be changed for your glory and our good. Amen. All right. The first thing to note in our passage today, of course, is the word therefore in verse 1. Now, just to make sure you're with me here today, and I know we've got lots of kids in the service, all right? Uh, as a reminder, anytime we see the word therefore, what question are we supposed to ask? What's it there for, all right? What's it there for? And the therefore here is a really important one because Paul is pointing us back now to everything that we have seen in chapters 1 through 3. And in chapters 4 through 6, we're going to find all kinds of practical applications and instructions for the Christian life. But before Paul gives these, he wants us to make sure that we, we realize that the basis for every one of them is the gospel. So in Ephesians 1 through 3, there, there are no commands, there are no instructions, there are no do this or don't do this. This is just pure, unadulterated good news. And on the basis of this good news, beginning here in verse 1 of chapter 4, Paul now urges us to walk or to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's what it means to walk worthy of the calling to which you've called. It's the call of the gospel, the call by which we become believers. He wants us to live in a way that is worthy of that calling. So here's the question that Paul wants us to wrestle with today. Here's what the Holy Spirit wants each of you to wrestle with today. Are you living a life that is worthy of the gospel. The word worthy means to have equal value. Therefore, to live a life worthy of the gospel means to live a life that is equal to all the blessings that God has poured into you. If you are a believer here today, God has just, just dumped upon you all kinds of blessings. We saw all those blessings in chapters 1 through 3. I don't have time to go over them uh, today, but just incredible, amazing blessings God has just dumped into your life by grace, not because of anything that you did. And so now the question becomes, 
Are we living a life that is equal to all of the blessings that God has given us? So, so let me ask you here. Is this the case for you? Are you living as God's specially chosen son or daughter? As someone whose sins have been forgiven, who has an inheritance waiting for them in heaven, are you living like you are alive? Are you living like the Holy Spirit is actually living in you? Are you giving yourself to the good works that God planned out for you before he created the world? Are you living a life that is worthy of the gospel? Now, what, what does this look like? Maybe you're not sure what it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel. So let me help you today. Or rather, let Paul help you. Notice what Paul says in verse 3, all right? In verse 3, he tells us that walking worthy of the gospel means working hard at maintaining unity. He says that he wants us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's what it means to walk worthy of the gospel. It means to be eager, to eagerly work hard at maintaining unity. Let me point out a number of critical things here. First, we need to understand how urgent this matter of unity is. The basic meaning of the word um, eager here in verse 3 is to make haste. We're to make haste to maintain our unity. However, according to commentator Marcus Barth, it means not only that, but a full effort of the whole man involving his will, sentiment, reason, physical strength, and total attitude. It excludes passivity, quietism, a wait-and-see attitude, or a diligence tempered by all deliberate speed. Yours is the initiative. Do it now. Mean it. You are to do it. Such are the overtones in verse 3. So, so listen, Harmony. Uh, maintaining our unity is a matter of utmost importance. It's something that we must, must, must give ourselves to if we're going to walk worthy of the gospel. Second, note that Paul doesn't tell us to create unity or to work towards it. He tells us to maintain it. Now, I'll think about that. You can only maintain something that you already have, correct? You can only maintain something that you already have. So Paul is actually telling us here that we already have unity. We just need to work really hard at maintaining it. Let me give an illustration here. If I tell my son, okay, that I really want to encourage him and I'm really going to urge him to maintain his truck, all right, and by telling him that he needs to go out and buy a truck or am I telling him that he needs to work really, really hard and save up so that he can do so? No, I'm telling him, I'm encouraging him to take care of the truck that he already has. Similarly, Paul's not telling us that we, we need to be unified. He's saying you already are, so work hard at visibly expressing that and displaying it. We as believers are already one. In fact, that's the point of verses four through six. Look at them again. There's one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now let me ask you this question, all right? 
This is probably the easiest question I've ever asked you, and I'll just give you a little bit of a clue here. The answer to this question is not Jesus, okay? So, so, but but here, here's the question. What is the operative word in verses 4 through 6? It's a word that said over and over and over again. What is it? It is one. It is one. We are one. We are one body, one church. Just walk through it with me, all right? We're one body, one church. We have one Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit living in us. We have one hope, the hope of eternal life. We have one Lord, Jesus Christ. We have one faith, a body of truth that has been passed down to us and that we believe. We have one baptism, a spiritual baptism in Christ. And we have one God, the one Father of us all. So uh, can, you, can you see the Trinitarian formula in verses 4 through 6? Can you see that in verse 4 there's the Holy Spirit, in verse 5 there's the Son, and in verse 6 there's the Father? This is one of the clearest passages on the Trinity in the entire Bible, all right? Spirit, Son, and Father. This actually was very likely an early uh, Christian creed. Something that early Christians uh, memorized, something that they, they read publicly when they came to worship. Perhaps they even sang it together as, as a song, all right? And, and the purpose of it was to, 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 to point out and to emphasize how every member of the Godhead, all right, is intimately involved in the unity that we have. What's more, this creed here is a declaration that our unity is to quote Kent Hughes, eternal and unbreakable. I want to say that again. Our unity as believers is eternal. It's going to last forever, and there is nothing that can break it. Now, here's the problem, though, that we have with a passage like Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Uh, the reality of what we see visibly doesn't really reflect what we see Paul telling us here in Scripture. You know what I'm talking about? All right, so, so we see that we as believers are one, but the visible representation of that doesn't really look like we're one. Let me give you a, a story here, all right? I just read it this week, and I promise you, I'm, this, this is the truth, this really happened, I'm not making this up at all, uh, but I read a story about a church split um, in which the uh, two uh, factions actually ended up in court because they were fighting over who would get the church facilities. Uh, and in the process of the court case, the judge actually threw it out and said, I'm not, I'm not going to rule on this. I'm going to send it back uh, to the denomination. I'm going to let them deal with it. And so the denomination got involved. And as they were uh, basically in the process of discovery, they came to find out that the issue started at a church potluck uh, when an elder got upset because the child who was sitting next to him got a bigger portion of meat than he did. Now, for, for some of us, we're going, that's absolutely, absolutely ridiculous. But for others of us, we're saying, been there, done that, got the scars from it. We at least, most of us, know of similar stories of that, of where churches, because of power struggles and just because of all kinds of issues, 
okay, have a whole lot of visible disunity. And we can even look at all of the different types of churches and denominations that there are out there. And we're going, it doesn't really seem like what Paul is saying here is actually true. In fact, we can get really cynical about this issue. And I just tell you, and I understand this, there are many of you who are cynical about the church today because of this issue. And so it's really important that we understand what Paul is trying to get across to us here in verse 3. Here's what he's calling us to. He's calling us to work really hard at visibly expressing what is often an uh, invisible reality. Now, let me explain what I mean. Whether we feel unified or not, and whether we see unity displayed or not, We are one with every true believer that has ever existed. That is a fact. That is a reality. And yet, of course, our relationships, even here in in, in our church, don't express this oneness all that often. And that's why Paul is telling us that we need to be eager to maintain our unity. This is why he's telling us that we need to do everything that we possibly can to make visible what is all too often invisible. And I want to tell you why this is so important. There's actually a bunch of reasons why it's important. Uh, But the one that Paul is primarily concerned with here in Ephesians 4 is maturity. Maturity. We're going to get into this a lot more in, in the coming weeks. But in short, unity is necessary for maturity. Without visible unity, there is no spiritual maturity. If we don't maintain our unity in Jesus, we won't grow to maturity in Jesus, either individually or corporately. We cannot become what God wants us to become and what Jesus died for us to become unless we maintain our unity. Maturity is a community with an emphasis on the unity project. And I'm, I really am going to hammer this in the weeks ahead, all right? But you, you cannot be spiritually mature without the church. You, you cannot be spiritually mature without the church. In fact, there, there is no such thing as a Christian who's not a part of the church, all right? It just, it just doesn't exist. There, there are no Christians without the church. And so we need one another if we're going to grow up into maturity in Jesus Christ. So here's the big question then. How do we maintain our unity? How how do we go about doing what Paul is calling us to do here? Well, we do so by displaying the four characteristics he gives us in verse 2. Our unity becomes visible as we display humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearing love. We need to pursue these characteristics, and as we do, then our unity will be maintained. Then our unity will become visible. So let's talk about these four characteristics, and we'll begin with humility. Paul probably leads with humility and actually says all humility because in the ancient Greco-Roman world, humility was despised and self-sufficiency and self-exaltation were admired. Uh, In fact, it's interesting that outside of the um, New Testament Um, humility only had a negative connotation. Humility in the the ancient world was not something that you wanted associated with you. It's not a characteristic that you wanted. And you know what? Something is uh, similarly true today. 
What's most admired today isn't self-abasement, but rather self-promotion. Let me just give you one example of this. Do you realize uh, that we are the generation who invented the selfie? So so, uh, when they write the history books, okay, 100, 200 years from now, you know what we're going to be known as? We're going to be known as the generation who invented the selfie. So I think about this. My grandfather died a few years ago. Um, He was in World War II, and his generation is known as the greatest generation, all right? The generation uh, that rescued us from Nazism and and all of that. Uh, And so that's what they're known for. We're going to be known for the selfie. We, We are. Because I don't know if there has ever been a generation at a time where people are more absorbed when with themselves than the day in which we live in. And so make no mistake that the number one reason there's so much disunity in our culture, we know that there's a huge amount of disunity in our culture, and we even know that it's in the church. And the reason for that is that we think way too much of ourselves and way too little of others. You see, where there's pride, there will always be disunity. Conversely, where there is humility, unity will flourish. Before you can have unity, you first of all have to have humility. Now, I want to commend you here uh, for a second. By and large, we as a church are presently expressing a great deal of unity. I'm really thankful that for the most part, uh, we have lots of harmony at Harmony. See what I did there? Okay. So, Kudos, kudos to you. And we should, we should be really thankful uh, for that. But I just want, want to point out to you that if that's going to continue, then we are going to have to, as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 5, clothe ourselves with humility towards one another. We're going to have to intentionally strive to make things not be about us, but about others. We're going to have to intentionally be outward focused instead of inward focused. So I just want to take a moment just to to apply this quickly. There's tons of application points here, but what this means is that in regard to to the church and and our life as a church, we need to be focused on not where we want to sit, what we want to hear, what songs we want to sing, how loud or how soft we want the music to be, what ministries we want, how we want other people to minister to us, but rather we need to be focused on what other people want and what other people need. As Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2, and and this is shocking to um, our minds today, but in Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells us that we are to consider others as more important than ourselves. And whenever we don't, that's going to lead to disunity. And where there's disunity, there will not be maturity. We need to consider others as more important than ourselves. We need to engage in our life as a church, outwardly focused, not inwardly focused. Second, we maintain our unity by displaying gentleness. Now, gentleness is closely related to humility and in many ways is a result of humility. In other words, humble people are gentle people. Now, here's the problem, though, when it comes to gentleness. Another word uh, for gentleness is meekness. 
all right, it is meekness. And of course, there's no word that sounds more like weakness than meekness, right? When we hear the word meek or we hear the word gentle, we think weak. However, meekness isn't weakness, it's strength under control. Gentleness is strength under control. This means that the gentlest people are often the strongest people. They're people who use their strength not to serve themselves, but to serve others. To quote John Stott, this is a great quote, gentleness is the quality of a strong personality who is nevertheless master of himself and servant of others. A gentle, a meek person is someone who has control over themselves and over the power and over the strength that they have, and they use that strength not for their own ends, but to serve other people. And so I just want to say this. We need strong men and strong women at Harmony Bible Church. We need a whole, a whole bunch of them, all right? Both men and both uh, and women. But what we need is not people who use their strength for their own ends, for their own purposes, for what they want, but rather to serve others and particularly to serve the most needy and vulnerable amongst us. Let me just, just for example, a man. A strong man is a man who has character and courage and who uses whatever strength he has in whatever way he has it, okay, to care, to take care of, okay, to minister to, to love on, to protect those who aren't as strong as he is. The problem, I don't have time for it. I got to move on, all right? We need gentle men. We need gentle women. Third, we maintain our unity by displaying patience. Being patient means being long-tempered, or as one commentator puts it, being long-suffering with aggravating people. <laughs> being long-suffering with aggravating people. Now, I actually think this is a great way to understand patience uh, because, you know, um, in the church there are lots of aggravating people. Amen. Amen. That's right. <laughs> In fact, you know, here at Revival Church, uh, you know, somewhere maybe 1,500 people today. Uh, you know how many aggravating people we will have today? 1,500. <laughs> Actually, 1,501 because I count for two, okay? Uh, the, we, we are all aggravating people to someone, to some bodies, okay? I, I know that I'm aggravating to, to plenty of you. I'm aggravating plenty of you uh, this morning. All right, we're all aggravating to someone. There's not one of us here today who doesn't get on someone else's nerves. And so the point is that if we're going to maintain our unity, we have to be long-suffering with one another. We have to, in the words of Colossians 3, put on patience with one another. And I think this is actually really great imagery, the imagery of putting on. Paul uses it in Colossians 3. We're going to see him using it later here in Ephesians chapter 4. He's telling us that just like we regularly put on fresh clothes, we regularly need to put on patience with one another. By the way, you know why you need to put it on? Because you just don't naturally have it in yourself. And so you have to consciously Make a choice to put on patience with other people. In fact, I would say this. In particularly, when you're coming on Sunday morning or at other times to, to meet with the body of Christ, 
Not only do you need to put on new clothes and some deodorant, take a shower and all that kind of stuff, all right, but you also need to consciously say, I'm going to put on patience with my brothers and sisters uh, today. Because here's what the, the devil loves to do, all right? We all have shortcomings. We all have flaws. And what the devil likes to do is he likes to sow aggravation in us with other people's flaws and shortcomings. And if we're not careful and intentional about it, that will lead to disunity, which leads then uh, to this. Here, here's the fourth characteristic The fourth thing that we need if we're going to maintain our unity, and that is forbearing love. Forbearing love. This is similar to patience, but actually goes a step further. This is really, really important, all right? Unity requires that we don't just put up with one another, but rather that we move toward one another in love. So so the, the idea of patience might give you this idea, oh, I just need to put up with these aggravating people. Of course, whenever you say that, you know what you're saying that in? You're saying that in pride, right? You're thinking, nobody's having to put up with me. <laughs> I just need to put up with everybody else. By the way, this is my general attitude that I have to work on, all right? But, but yeah, a little transparency here. But, but, but here's the thing. Uh, forbearing love means that we're not just putting up with people, but that we're moving toward them in love. I, I want to remind you that love isn't first and foremost a feeling, we got a lot of kids in the service today. So let me just say to you, children, uh, love is not first and foremost a feeling. It's an action. It's a choice. It's a decision. It's a decision, a choice that we make, okay, to overlook others' sins and shortcomings in love. Here's what Peter tells us. First Peter chapter 4, this would be a great verse for every single one of us to memorize. Above all, above all, Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, remember who this guy was? This guy knew it, right? He knew it because Jesus, all right, covered over a multitude of his his sins. He experienced it. And that's what we are called to do for one another. We are called to overlook, to forgive each other's shortcomings and sins. So let me ask you this. Do you want to be a church where people are loving in response to your shortcomings and sins? I really mean, do you want to be a part of that kind of church? You do, don't you? You do. I mean, we all do. Well, if that's the kind of church you want to be a part of, Do you know what that requires from you? It requires you to be loving in the face of others' shortcomings and sins. If you want to be a part of a church where love abounds, you need to contribute to that by being a person in whom love abounds. Let me tell you, okay, let me tell you uh, some of the people that I have to work on being patient with. All right? And that I have to work on, and I am working on, moving towards a forbearing love. It's the people who want the church to be something that they're not willing to be. So it's the people who want the church to be warm and welcoming, but they aren't interested in being warm and welcoming themselves. It's the people who want the church to be a place of grace, but they aren't willing to give grace themselves. It's the people who want the church to be a place of forgiveness and acceptance but they're not willing to forgive or accept themselves. 
Friends, if we want the church to be those things, we have to be those things because we are the church. We are the church. And and so, yes, yes, the church has issues. The church has problems. This church is going to have problems because the lead pastor has problems. Hey, 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 hey. (laughs) I'm going to move towards that person in love after the service. (laughs) Um. But, but in, in, in all seriousness, we, we, we're never going to be perfect. You've heard it said before, right? Uh, we love to have a perfect church, but if there was a perfect church, none of us could go to it because we'd ruin it the moment that we stepped in the door. Because none of us are perfect. And, and so we've got to work really hard at making the church be the kind of place that we want it to be. And the way that we do so is being what we want it to be. We've all, we've all got to decide, are we going to be part of the problem are we going to be part of the solution? And part of the solution means moving towards one another in forbearing love. And so here's a final question today. Are you walking worthy of the gospel by living a life of humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearing love? Are these four things characteristic of your life? And I want to close here by telling you how they can become characteristics of your life. So so maybe they're not, or maybe you need to grow in them. All of us, okay, need to to grow in them, including me. So how do we grow in these characteristics? And and here's the reality, friends, okay? You you, you can't just wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to be patient today. I'm going to be loving today. I'm going to be humble today. I am going to be gentle today. And I tell you, you can't do that. I know it because I've tried it, tried it, tried it. It don't work that way. You cannot do it on your own. You need these things to, to, to really in, in some way be infused into your life. Let me tell you how that happens. It happens as you look at the fact and you reflect on and you immerse yourself in the reality that God has been all of those things for you. God has been humble for you. Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells us that Jesus, even though he is God, didn't consider being God something to grasp, something to hold on to, but he took the form of a servant. And taking the form of a servant, he humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Think about that. God himself, the very God himself, the majestic, all-powerful ruler of the universe who has no reason to be humble at all, determined that he was going to take on sinful human flesh, become, become like sinful human flesh, and he was going to hang naked on a cross for you. How do you become humble? You become humble by over and over again looking at how humble Jesus has become for you. How do you become gentle? You become gentle again by looking at Jesus hanging on that cross and recognizing as he, as he hung on that cross, those who nailed him there were reviling him. They, they were calling out all kinds of nasty insults. They said to him, you saved others. Why don't you save yourself? And just think about this. Jesus could have saved himself, right? You see, they thought that weakness is what held Jesus on the cross, but it was actually strength. Jesus with a word I mean, just a word. He just could have thought, thought it, and they would have been destroyed. They would have been annihilated. 
But you know what? If Jesus had exerted his strength for his own sake, where would that leave you and me? Jesus was gentle. Are you thankful that he was gentle for you? And, and, and as we look at that, friends, we become gentle. As we look at Jesus, we, we, we become what he is. Think about patience and forbearing love. Has God not been patient and forbearing with you? Where would you be today if God hadn't been patient with you? Where would you be? Has he not over and over again not only put up with your sin and your rebellion and your wickedness and your wandering, but hasn't he also come after you? Isn't that a wonderful thing about the gospel? God doesn't expect us to come to him. He comes to us. He runs to us. He runs to us in love. And as we recognize this and we see over and over again what he has done for us, that makes us into people who are like him. This is why we preach the gospel here at Harmony Bible Church every week. This is why we never tell you, just do this, just do this, just do this, because you can't do it on your own. But you can do it in his strength and in his power. And as you look at him and immerse yourself in what he has done for you over and over and over again.